Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Charlotte Bond. And I'm Lucy Hansen. Being a parent is not glamorous. It's hard work and it often goes unappreciated, in life and in fiction. When we do see parents represented in our fiction, we tend to see a very limited kind of representation. Rarely are parents the centre of the story. The prevailing social narrative is that parents don't have grand adventures, they aren't exciting people anymore. What possible stories could they tell? We wanted to dive into the idea of parenthood as seen particularly through genre fiction. The kinds of roles they are given, how they are portrayed, and the difference in representation of mothers and fathers. To help us explore this topic is Julia Fine, whose novels both explore parenthood from different perspectives and genders. Julia, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi. Uh, yes, I'm Julia Fine. Um, I'm the author of What Should Be Wild, uh, which was out in 2018. And then my new book is called The Upstairs House, and it is just out this month. Wonderful. And yeah, I mean, I came across you, I can't even remember how I came across What Should Be Wild, but uh, I, I really loved it um, several years ago. So I've been following you since then. So it's it's lovely to have you on. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So let's just talk a little bit more generally about parents in fiction just to to kick us off. So what kinds of roles do parents usually get given in fiction, particularly in speculative fiction? And are mothers and fathers treated differently? Oh, gosh, I think... You know, I, I, the upstairs house is about a new mom, a new mother who has just had a baby. And part of why I was interested in writing about that is because I felt like we so rarely see new mothers in fiction. I think in general, in genre fiction, especially if it's an adventure story, so much is, you know, how do we get the parents out of the way so that the adolescent or the child or whoever it is can go have their adventure. And it it makes you feel sort of like, oh, especially as a woman, you know, once you hit a certain age, your adventures are over and the story can't be about you anymore. And I was interested in sort of really digging in and looking at this moment that I don't feel is explored in fiction. Um, and especially in a way that I don't think we look at it. I, I think there are a lot of books about someone who maybe wants to be a mother and has trouble getting pregnant or the story of sort of how how someone has a baby, sort of a romance novel where, you know, this is how the parents met and then they had you. And I think there are, like I said, stories where the parents are either the obstacles to overcome or get sort of sent out of the book entirely. And so I was very interested in looking at a mother as the protagonist and really digging into what it's like for particularly new parents. I totally agree with you, Julia. It is so great to read a book that is so closely associated with birth and the the immediate after birth as well. You don't get so many pregnant women, and I wish we could see more of those, but you do kind of get mothers who are settled and in that role and, you know, they're really strong. I mean, perfect example is obviously Ripley, who even though she's sort of thrust into it, has got history with having a kid and everything in Aliens. But it was just so wonderful to read a book that looks at the practical difficulties. And that's what I really liked about your book. It was 
had elements of unreality mm-hmm. in it, but it also had an awful lot of what I remember being the the awfulness of, of having a baby, which, whilst wonderful, is also still quite awful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I felt when I had so my my son was born in 2017, and I was the first in my close group of friends to have a baby, and so I really hadn't. I had I, nobody warned me um, how how exhausting it was and how sort of physically draining it was, and I wasn't I didn't feel very prepared, and I felt like in so many other moments of my life I had read a book or I even if it hadn't been explicitly sort of to prepare me for the moment of what getting married would be like or to prepare me for you know graduating from school, but I had read books that had taught me and given me that information. And I read, I I gravitate toward fiction. I write fiction and I feel like we learn so much from fiction, but I hadn't, I hadn't seen a book that sort of unpacked this moment. And so I felt like there was really an opportunity there for me to write the book that I wish I had had access to in those early days when I was having all of these conflicting feelings. And I wasn't sure if it was me, if, if it was sort of a problem with me as a new parent, or if it was something that was common. Um, and it turns out it's so common to be frustrated and exhausted and maybe wish for, you know, however long that you had never had a baby while you're up at three in the morning nursing or your baby won't sleep or you're changing diapers or whatever it is that you're doing. Um, but I think because we don't talk about it, uh, a lot of women feel very alone in those moments. I utterly agree. And I remember going through so many first experiences of motherhood, especially the first sort of couple of weeks, couple of months. And you're right, there are no books about it. And those books that are about it go, oh, it's normal for this. And there is no normal when you've got a new baby. And every if you mm-hmm. join proper mother's groups and talk to other people, then you do learn about that. Um, but the thing about your protagonist in this, uh, Megan, is that she is so isolated and so alone, which of course feeds into the whole horror genre and everything around it. And she can't decide if she's a good mother or not because she just doesn't have that contact. And, you know, that really resonated with me as both a reader and a mother. Having that community and having sort of that network of actual, actual people that you know. So the the message boards are great. And there's a a whole sort of message board plot line um, where Megan is using these new mother, like what what to expect when you're expecting message boards which I definitely use as a new mom. Um, but it's not, it's not the same to have sort of an anonymous somebody telling you, oh yeah, my baby does this. You know, that, that human connection is so important. And she is very isolated and very lonely in this book, which plays both into, like you said, the, the genre elements of it. And it allowed me to play with the horror elements of this book in a way that I might not have been able to had she sort of had her best friend there to talk her through things. But it also sort of speaks to she, you know, she ends up experiencing pretty severe postpartum depression. And so I think that that's something where even if you have people around you, you still feel really alone and isolated. Um, and so it just sort of was, you know, her, her outside and her experiences mirror what she's going through internally in the book. It's interesting because I was thinking about as you said earlier, how I know I'm going back a bit, but you were talking about how women, when they are there as parents or, or just generally a parents, not necessarily just mothers, but they're sort of got out of the way. And then I was thinking that when you do have mothers often in storylines where they're actually giving birth or they, you know, the, it, it is that sort of early on situation. So often 
the mothers just die. Mm-hmm. And they're like sort of written out in that sense. And yet you don't then even get a story really about a man who, you know, a father who's really struggling in that same period. Well, I don't know why that is, because it seems like if you're going to set up so many stories, having the mother die in childbirth, surely it is also a very interesting and rich world to explore for men to be thrown into this thing that they had no expectation of of being by themselves and are having to deal with all these things that that women have dealt with for millennia and are still struggling with every time they go through this. So I also think that's rather interesting that there, at least when it comes to mothers and women, we may not have those narratives about it, but there is sort of a, a somewhat understanding that it is difficult, that it's it's a hard thing to have to do. But when you get stories, especially, you know, in, in, fantasy and stuff where the you know the mother dies in childbirth and then somehow the father just carries on and it it never seems to be that <laughs> that difficult and you're like mm, okay <laughs> that's yeah they just they figure it out i mean who needed her anyway um it yeah i i think that's totally true i think there's also a lack of i mean i i, I think obviously i have written about a new mother. I'm very interested in writing about women and sort of the particular experience of being a woman in the world. But I do think that the new fathers also have, you know, there's a whole range of emotions and feelings. And I think that it can almost, I wouldn't say it's harder for new fathers who struggle, but it is equally difficult, I think, you know, to to bring a baby into a household that has not previously had a baby there. It impacts, you know, the way it changes your marriage um, or your partnership. It impacts just your the logistics of everything. It's an emotional adjustment for everybody. So I totally think that even with the mother present, you know, there's there's a rich there's like a rich emotional sort of world that you can look at in fiction. And then to take the mother out and have the father do it all alone, you're totally right. Like how I'd like a book of, you know, can we get the backstory for like, who is it like Snow White's father with the infant, you know, um, it would be, I, it's almost as if we sort of as a society have decided that, you know, writing about parenting is not worthwhile or not interesting to us. And we'll just sort of skip over that aspect of it. Yeah. And I was also just it occurred to me, you know, a lot of the the tropes again in fantasy, and I'm thinking particularly we have Game of Thrones, you have Tyrion's father. He hates Tyrion and blames Tyrion for uh, his mother's death when she was giving birth to him. It's interesting because that is actually a really deep psychological and interesting dynamic, which I think you did actually touch on in What Should Be Wiles, where... Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maisie really literally is responsible for, for her, mother. her mother's yeah. death. Yeah. And that relationship with her father and him knowing that and, and you know, she kind of becomes almost like a, a scientific experiment for him and all that sort of thing. But it, it is interesting that so many of the representations that I can think of where you do have a mother dying in childbirth and then the kid grows up to be basically hated by his father because he's responsible for... The, the kid's responsible for the, the death of the the loved, beloved wife um, who they don't get to 
to see anymore. And that's a very traumatic dynamic that I don't think they then actually really address in a lot of these <laughs> instances. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to think if I, I, I feel like I have read, I've definitely read something that really digs into that, but it is, yeah, it's so, it's so interesting. I don't, I, I, the parent, parent child relationships are just fascinating. However you slice it, like if you are coming at it from the perspective of a parent or a child, I mean, they're just, there's no end to the way that you can write about them. So I guess is, which I guess is why I have ended up now writing two books about sort of how, how to be a daughter and what it means to sort of be parented or be a parent. So since we're beginning kind of to touch on children um, and children's roles, what role do you think children tend to play in narratives that explore parenthood? And how does the portrayal of parents change when the main point of view is that of parents versus their children? It's interesting because there's children, I think, and then there's babies. It's hard to look at a baby and have a baby sort of be a character in fiction and more than just sort of a cipher or sort of a large metaphor for whatever it is that the parent is going through. So I do think that often once we get to, once it, once a child reaches a certain age, it seems like children are usually then the focus of the novel, um, but very small children. I think it's hard hard to do them justice almost. And often in, especially horror fiction, which is what I sort of was drawing on, I think, for the upstairs house, in some ways, a baby, you know, you have a sort of the bad seed story of the baby who like Rosemary's baby, where um, the baby is a problem and is going to harm the mother is going to hurt the mother. Or you have sort of the, the alternate where the baby sort of can do no wrong. And then the mother is the problem or the parents are the problem. But I think it's rare that you get a fully fleshed sort of character in a young child. Then, like I said, shifts as they get older. And then it sort of goes the other way where like the parent becomes almost the Charlie Brown parents where they're just sort of in the background, either preventing the children from doing what they want or they're, you know, written off entirely. So yeah, it is interesting looking at the different sort of parent-child tropes. And at what point that reversal comes? Mm. Well, I've really liked what you've just pointed out about the fact that the very young children and babies don't necessarily have an accurate voice in um, in fiction and, and in genre fiction. And I like this idea that when they're that age, they become metaphors or um, some kind of, um, they have a place in the novel that serves some kind of greater purpose that you know it's to talk about the overarching themes or it's to you know shine a light on a particular character trait of a particular adult maybe that's the father or the mother um, and that you know they actually don't have this kind of accurate I, this is quite I've never really thought about this topic before because it's actually quite perplexing isn't it like what why we have this um is there some inability to depict babies or young children in a way that is not a projection of our own desires or our own way that we want them to be? Do they have to like serve a purpose? Kind of thing? Yeah, I, in a way, I think even in real life, babies almost are a projection for us. You know, like we dress them and we move them around and we take them places. And the only way that they really assert themselves is by screaming in the middle of the night. 
But until, I mean, I, one of the reasons that I was so interested, especially in writing about sort of the, the fourth trimesters, like those first three months with a baby is because the baby really has no personality. They don't, they're not appreciative. They can't smile. You're just sort of feeding them and they're sleeping and they're pooping and they're, you know, spitting up on you. And they really are. So for my purposes, for the upstairs house, it, it worked out perfectly that the baby in this book is sort of the physical representation of that transition where Megan, the narrator, had seen herself one way and then has to shift into this role of a mother. And the whole book really is exploring sort of how she figures out how emotionally to become a mother. Obviously, she physically has become a mother the second she has the baby. But sort of it's it's an emotional transformation. And it really just requires sort of a reconception of who she is as the book continues on and the baby sort of learns how to smile or the baby like wrinkles her nose or can do more. She becomes slightly more of a person, but it is really, really hard. I mean, unless you're sort of your whole project, I think is to write a book from the perspective of a baby, which would be very weird, um, but also very interesting. Uh, it's hard. It's just hard to to even say, you know, this is a person until they're at least several months old. I like the idea of you saying how when they're too young, the babies are just there in a narrative for metaphorical reasons or or a thing for the the adult characters to react against. And then once the children become a certain age, the parents are only there as things to react against. It's like they can't seem to exist in the same narrative with a, a similar agency. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's really hard to write. I'm not sure why. I don't know if maybe it's the mindset that you need to be writing from the point of view of a child and a parent, um, but it does sort of seem like even even books about parents and children, if where they um, where the parents and the children are the same have the same sort of um, amount of page time and the same interiority, it seems like the kids are often at least teenagers, if not, you know, like in their 20s and the parents are in their 60s or, you know, the it's much more about how adults communicate than how children and adults communicate. Although I might be wrong. Maybe I'm just not reading the right books. Um, but from what from what I've read... Um, it is either the child is, like I said, sort of there as a plot point or to serve some sort of symbolic purpose, which I fully admit that my book, that's the way the child is operating, or the child is grown enough, but is is that they're not a child anymore. It's interesting you mentioned about babies being plot points, because I was thinking of things like um, Rosemary's Baby, where obviously, you know, it, it all kind of cycles around like is the baby the devil or the son the devil, whatever. And it is at the same time as being crucial to the point, the baby isn't necessarily part of the plot. Uh, and then when you get something, mm-hmm. when you get to older kids, you get things like the midwitch cuckoos and they start to affect things around them. So it's almost like you say, as they grow older, it's a very different effect they have on the plot and therefore it's a very different effect they have on their parents as well. And I think, Speaking as someone who is um, an author, a reader, and a mother, you do have a very different relationship with your baby than you do with your child. You know, there's a certain element of when they're a baby, they're 
your worry is about damaging them or not getting things right from a very basic point of view, you know, cleaning them or them having a disease and you not being able to figure out what it is. Whereas when they get older, it is about not understanding them as well or perhaps guiding them in the wrong direction or feeling that you're failing them on a sort of a more moral level. And I think depending on how old the child is within the mm-hmm. book will depend on what kind of horror you're looking at. Yes, that's that's totally true. There's so It's so funny because as as a parent, I mean, Charlotte, you're a parent, so you know it. your child at least my children, every, every few weeks, even it's like, I have two new, I have two children. Um, I have a a four-year-old, almost four-year-old and uh, a new baby. And it, every few weeks, it's almost like they're different people, um, because of the way that kids change and grow. And so I wonder too, if you look at just from a narrative perspective, if usually when you're writing a book, just general, like, is is just this fundamentally the same person because of just kids, especially young children, develop so quickly and so drastically. So we've mentioned horror and how horror elements were sort of picked up in the upstairs house, but women have long been closely linked with the supernatural, especially in sort of the more gothic narratives. And similarly, following the mental unraveling of a character is something we see more often with female characters. You know, I'm thinking of things like the yellow wallpaper or the mm-hmm. bell jar, for instance. You know, but why is this? Why do we see more of this with female characters than than men? Does it is it all about the hysterical woman? Um, but what? What can we do in in the modern representation of the supernatural and mental unraveling of female characters that that could change this kind of conversation? I think it is in a way about sort of that that root idea of hysteria, but not because there's any accurate basis in sort of women as hysterical, but because the way that we've set up societies doesn't make space necessarily for women and for women to fe- have have the feelings that they actually feel or to have, you know, be able to have the experiences that they need. And so I think that a lot of it, to me, it seems like the reason in my book, at least, it's the mother who is ha- who is struggling here is because society's expectations for mothers are so vastly different than the expectations for fathers. And sort of this idea, the amount that women are expected to juggle and the roles women are expected to play. And of course, you know, it, it, nobody, nobody can sustain sort of being that perfect woman, being that perfect mother, sort of being so selfless, giving everything up. Nobody can sustain, you know, like suppressing your desires or whatever other role it is that society has decided women should play. So I think that the supernatural in fiction, at least, um, is a really, a useful tool to sort of let women out of those boxes and show how women chafe against these societal expectations. To me, it feels like until we drastically can change society, uh, we're going to keep getting these stories and sort of letting women have their, the, the things that in the real world and in real life, women aren't allowed to do even in 2021, um, sort of the supernatural gives them a place for these things and these feelings. I think one of the 
elements of parenthood, particularly with mothers that you perhaps don't get with fathers, is how society has this idea that mothers have some kind of special connection with the baby that the fathers don't have. And I think that's a very outdated idea. And I think there are lots of fathers who, you know, can tell what their child, what kind of cry their child has got, whether it's a hungry cry or a, a nappy cry or, or, you know, just I'm cold or, you know, I've been crying for so long, I'm just crying for the hell of it kind of a cry. And I think there, because obviously men took quite a step back for the early years of parenthood, they never had that connection. And it was kind of seen as something a little bit wonderful, but also a little bit spooky, you know, to have this almost mental connection with children. Whereas now you get um, fathers who are so much more, you know, hands-on and may even stay at home and, and look after the baby and bottle feed it while the mother goes back out to work. But even in those modern times, I still think that people struggle to shape this idea that there is this special unspoken mythical bond between a mother and her new child. And I think that's where, you know, horror can really exploit it as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, it's so, it, to me, it seems so dangerous because it, it sets expectations, I think, for mothers to have this, like you said, this sort of supernatural bond. And it sets this idea that if you don't know, like maybe you can't tell what your baby wants, or maybe you don't feel instantly connected, it makes you feel as a mother, like something's the matter with you. And then for fathers, it also sets sort of expectations really low and it sets the bar very low, I think, for what fathers can do and the way that fathers can bond with their babies. And I think you're totally right. Like, obviously, if you're a nursing mother, like only the mother can give the baby milk. But there's so much more, especially after those first few weeks and the first few months, there's so much more to parenting than just providing food. Um, And so I think, yeah, I, I think there's so much room for roles of both mothers and fathers to change. I think early parenthood is also ripe for horror because it is the unknown. And it goes back to what you were saying earlier about not having access to other people, to perhaps books that are written a bit more like, if your baby doesn't sleep through within the first two weeks of life, then you're a failure. I think there's still (laughs) so much that is unknown. And I remember bringing our child home and me and my husband spending the next few days just trying to figure out what on earth this squalling little thing wanted. And, you know, there's so much horror ripe in that. And I don't think it needs to be focused on the mothers. I think it'd be fantastic to try and see a father doing it, perhaps even more so because you could then play with the trope of, well, there isn't this mental connection that the mother has where they just breathe in and automatically know what the baby wants. I think it is Mm -hmm. the fear of the unknown. And I think now that we're in a, a better society, it should perhaps be expanded out to men to understand and to explore this relationship at the very early stages. Oh, I totally agree. And I think that, yeah, I, I, I completely agree too. This idea that it bringing your baby home is like you're entering into a horror story. Um, cause it is this idea of you're in, you're in a whole new world. Um, you're not, you know, you're physically going back to wherever it is that you had been before, but you've just biologically, everything is different. You know, you've given birth to a baby and you have someone to care for and your, your schedule is just different. You know, I, I remember realizing, that with a new baby, they have to eat every two hours. And I remember sort of that, that hitting me, oh, but what about like, when, when do I get to sleep? When does, you know, what, what happens there? Um, and it just, your world is just turned so upside down. And so I think this idea of, you know, being totally exhausted and very vulnerable emotionally and physically, um, 
is is a nice place to set a horror story. And then also this idea that we were talking about earlier of what what it means to be normal and there is no normal and how much of what's happening is actually happening and how much of what's happening should be happening. Like I remember thinking, you know, in um, after you have a baby in pregnancy, you grow a lot of extra hair and your hair falls out, like you lose hair and it's normal. But I remember thinking, you know, like what is happening to my body? It, it feels like, you know, body horror. Um, and so the up, in the upstairs house, I really was able to play with that because this idea of, you know, you already as a new mother don't really know what's going on and can't really tell what's happening and what's real and you don't know what to expect. And so then if you add in a supernatural element, in this case, a ghost, you know, she's sort of Megan, the protagonist is there's a ghost there and, but she's not really scared. She just sort of is like, well, yeah, there's a ghost here, but also like there's milk coming out of my breasts. Like what, you know, there's so many things have changed that it's hard to separate the things that are wrong or supernatural from the things that aren't. And so I think the postpartum period is a really, really nice place to play with horror or the supernatural or just speculative fiction in general um, in that regard. I really like your idea of mother's body being in a way strange to her, like a strange country that isn't, that no wonder postpartum is an interesting period to set, you know, to talk about set kind of horror stories in and talk about new motherhood. But I I like this idea that um, it isn't just a mental thing. It's a physical thing as well, because, you know, we do talk about body horror and, but, you know, often the body horror we talk about is, you know, it's grossly exaggerated and, you know, it's taken to extremes, but actually, (laughs) actually having a baby is, pretty it's pretty extreme in its own way I guess (laughs) like you don't even have to go that far it still must be um talking from no experience whatsoever um to me it seems quite quite a horrific change you know like and, and you have to I guess learn to love yourself in both forms and say well this is still me it's just that you know I've done this incredible thing and it and it is going to be different but it's that sort of level of um we don't I don't think women talk about women's bodies that much like in and in fiction I don't think we talk about pregnant bodies and and what they look like afterwards I think that that's why it's so important to um, bring these elements into speculative fiction I totally agree and I think even with my first baby I knew oh I'm I'm pregnant I'm so clearly but how I, I just thought it I would just pop back to normal I think I think I think more and more often in fiction and in film, we're depicting what it actually is like physically after you have the baby. You know, there's a million things where you see, you know, the woman in the hospital screaming and they're saying push and then the baby pops out and then she's happy holding the baby and there's like a lullaby playing and everyone comes to visit. You know, that's like what you see. That's traditionally what we've seen. And I think even like seeing, quote unquote, seeing childbirth, people are like, oh, is that too much? But it is, it's such a it's such a vulnerable, like I said, period of time, both emotionally and physically. And on top of that, you're physically, you know, you're, you've just been through a a massive physical trauma and no matter how you've delivered the baby, if it was vaginally or a C-section, whatever it is, you know, you have to recover. But at the same time that you're recovering, all of a sudden you're responsible for this little creature who's totally dependent on you and, you know, needs to be fed constantly and changed and rocked to sleep. And so, it's just it, the physical exhaustion of it is so overwhelming. And then on top of that, there's sort of the, the mental coming to terms with how your body has changed and how your life has changed and what 
you're no longer able to do. You know, it's not like you can even run to the store really quickly without having to buckle the baby into the car seat in time when you're going to feed the baby. And it is, it's just such a drastic transformation. It feels like just, to me, it feels just as important to write about as any other sort of major life transformation that we talk about. Such a major life transition. And so I think, again, that's why it lends itself well to speculative fiction, because there's always a place, I think, when there's any sort of life transition that you're writing about for the supernatural or the speculative to come in and amplify those changes. But even even not in speculative fiction, I think there's so much room and so much that we need to show this is like how people, this is what people's lives are like. And I think that seeing, just like being recognized and being acknowledged is so important. And even my, my hope with this book is that even like one person who is with their new baby thinking, oh my gosh, the world is moving on without me while I'm here stuck with this baby. Like just to know like, oh no, somebody, I, I see you and I know what you're going through. You know, it, it feels important to me. I think it is really important, but also it, it brought to mind The Fifth Child. I don't know if anyone's read yes. that one. It's, yes, yes. I love that book. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. But I was I was thinking about that as you were talking and, and the idea of kind of trying to process something that doesn't make sense. And of course we start thinking about, oh, well, maybe, maybe it's an alien. What if it's not actually my child? What if, mm-hmm. you know, all these things going wrong? Well, it's nothing to do with me. It's, it's, it's wrong. And, and that kind of complete detachment. And what I, I find really interesting about that one in particular is that, you know, she portrays this family who everything is perfect and they've already had four children and they're all perfect. And then suddenly the fifth one comes along and he's wrong and something is wrong. It mustn't be them because they've had four perfect ones. So mm-hmm. it's got to be him and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And it's, it feels, and it's so somehow so sinister and, you know, on the one hand, you can absolutely see, yes, this this is some sort of alien creature, not their child. But on the other hand, is it? And is it them being, you know, like, where is the horror? Is the horror the child or the parents or the it, what? Yes. Ah, yeah. Yeah, that's what I love about that book too. Is you can't you can't really tell who the antagonist is. Like, is it is it these perfect parents who are sort of being terrible to their child, or do they actually have a demon child? Um, I, I love Doris Lessig. So. Yeah, I mean, that that book blew my mind. I picked it up in like a, you know, when you just wander into a bookstore and go, oh, that looks interesting. And then uh-huh. I took it home and I just devoured it. I was like, oh my God. And now, yeah, I love her. <laughs> Obviously, in the upstairs house, the whole point is that Megan and to a certain extent Ben are trying to be good parents. And there's a lot of fiction around whether parents are good parents or bad parents. From society's point of view, there is little that is despised more than a bad parent. And yet they appear in so many stories and in so many different genres. So what do you think it is that makes bad parents such interesting characters? And do you think that bad mothers are portrayed in a different way from how bad fathers are presented? I want to say that I don't believe there's such thing as a bad parent, but obviously that's not true. I mean, there is, there are certainly ways that you can be a bad parent. Um, but I think it's it seems as if most people who are worried about being bad parents are probably not bad parents. And so you have there's sort of evil stepmother-esque, you know, par- parents who are truly evil and 
bad. And then there's also this sort of more colloquial idea of being a bad parent. And what does that mean that you, you know, give your baby formula? Does it mean you let your baby watch TV? Does it, you know, what, what does it mean to be a bad parent? And there's so much judgment from society. And I think that simply because the role of parenting has been predominantly sort of the woman's role for so long, that's probably why mothers get so much of that judgment. Like you said, like there are definitely bad parents in literature who are just very clearly bad parents and they do bad things and they're sort of evil with the capital E. But what I'm the most interested in in literature is sort of the more nuanced idea of like, what what does it mean to be a bad parent and to think of yourself as a bad parent? And so hard. It's such a difficult job. It's a really, really, it's hard to do. It's especially hard now as we're all, you know, schools are closed. And so you're a parent and teacher and whatever else it is all at the same time. So it feels especially relevant to sort of examine this issue of like what makes a parent good or bad. But I think in, again, in literature, it goes back to what we were talking about before, where it's expedient to the story to say, like, I need to run away from my father because he's really awful to me and hates me, like you said, with like Tyrion Lannister, like my father hates me because he thinks I killed my mother. And it's just like black and white and super easy. And I think for women, it's just different. It's different. It's the, the black and white isn't there because so much of what is quote unquote bad is sort of a social construct or is sort of imposed by society or is, you know, there to make women feel guilty about choosing careers over being stay at home parents. I feel like I'm rambling a little bit, but it's, it's such an interesting, it's such an interesting concept of what it means to be bad. I really liked your idea that it can be sort of black and white. And I think this is particularly the case for men in stories. And it's not so much parenting. I tend to see in novels and in films that it's almost like a quick fix when it comes to a relationship with a kid. If you want someone to sympathise with your character, you have them be nice to kids. If you want to vilify them, then you have them be a bad parent or be you know, terrible to children. Um, I, for the life of me, I can't think of any examples of bad parents, except in fairy tales where basically all of the stepmothers are terrible and all that kind of jazz. But I was thinking Mm -hmm. when it comes to being nice to kids that you've got Hannibal Lecter in the film Hannibal, very different from the book, but the final scene of that is, you know, he has murdered and killed and tortured all these people, but you end on a really sympathetic note because he's quite nice to a little boy on an aeroplane. And I was thinking about aliens as well. We talked about that earlier in Sigourney Weaver being um, held up as a good mother figure because she looks after Newt. But also I think it's Hicks, Michael Bean's character, also takes a moment in amongst all of it to just be nice to the kid. And I remember thinking, oh, you know, all the other Marines are charging around and whatever, and they're all protecting the kid and each other. But you kind of feel sympathy for Michael Bean because he goes and plays a sort of a fatherly role. So I do kind of feel that sometimes in fiction it's, it's a quick fix to decide mm-hmm. if you want to be sympathetic towards a character or not. And you just tend to throw bad parents in going, well, nobody likes a bad parent. So even if he's a really great guy, we'll show him being awful to children and then the readership will take against him. Yeah, I, the bar is just so low for men in general, isn't it? I mean, yeah, this idea, I, I, I think that in fiction, but also just in society in general, there's, it's, it's so um, an example is, this idea that if, if, the, if the mother is at home while the father's working, the mother 
is parenting. That's what she's supposed to be doing. But if, you know, the father stays at home to watch the baby while the mother does whatever it is she needs to do, then he's babysitting. Like, no, he's not babysitting. Like, this is the child's father. It's not, we're not going to, you know, applaud a father. I guess we are as a society. Like, why do we say, oh, how wonderful that, you know, the mother got to go do whatever her work event was while the father, or in my case, even like I had a book that I was promoting and I had a baby and people said, oh, your husband's with the baby. Oh, he's babysitting. How great. It's like, no, he's being a parent when he's at work. Nobody says to me, oh, how great you're taking care of the baby. So this, the level of sort of what it means to be good or bad is just so much easier for men and so much simpler for men because no one would say, oh, he's a bad dad because he gave the baby formula or he's a bad dad because, you know, he let the baby put whatever this thing is in the, in, you know, wasn't paying attention, was on a work call and like let the baby eat the extension cord or whatever it is that was happening. You know, those are things where I think people are, are, are much more likely to say like, oh, well, he's trying so hard will give him this one sort of thing and way that he messed up. Whereas for women, it's just, you, you can't do anything right. And I feel like I've watched as, especially in America this past year, where so many of us have been just home, both trying to work full-time and sort of do remote school and parent full-time and have had sort of very little help. And it still is like, well, how come... Why, why isn't the responsibility also the father's responsibility, I guess, to, to parent in the same way that a mother does? And why is it so easy to say, oh, she's a bad mom because X, Y, and Z. And the, the way to be a bad dad is to like be truly evil to your children. It's very frustrating and very sexist. And I think we as a society have a very long way to go. Just want to say, here, here. <laughs> Absolutely. And I have to say that we had exactly the same conversation in our house the other day when I said, oh, I'm, you know, I'm sorry, I've got to go do this work thing. Are you okay watching our daughter? And he went, yes, it's not like I'm a babysitter. I am her father. And, you know, particularly in the pandemic, I think it's got an awful lot out of whack, the roles of parents, particularly as parents are now acting as school teachers. And you're now like, well, do I rate myself as a great parent, but a terrible teacher? Am I okay at both? Am I, is my role as teacher detracting from my role as parent? I think in modern society, there's the general roles, gender roles, family roles are all mixed up and it's just impossible to, to tell. And I think there's going to be a brand new, you know, brand of horror set of pandemic homeschooling shortly. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I, there better be. But I, I mean, in a way that, and I wrote, I wrote the upstairs house before the pandemic. I sort of finished editing it at the very beginning, but it, it the book was mostly just written before all that. But that is what the book is about is how difficult it is to be everything at once and how you sometimes just have to choose and how, it just isn't possible to be both, you know, to have the career that you want. And this is, I'm not saying anything new, this idea of like, can a woman have it all, you know, but it, it's, you can't have the career you want and the romantic relationship you want and be the mother you want and have the social life you want. It's just, just not possible to do everything. And yet, especially as women, I think we feel guilt, a lot of guilt for not being able to juggle all of it. And I think we often feel guilt too for if we choose, if we prioritize anything at all over our children, in even in the short term, like this one thing to prioritize over your child in the long term, you know, but smaller decisions, I think that unless mothers are allowed to be a little bit selfish, there's just no way to sustain what 
what motherhood is. Like you can't, I don't know. I, I remember saying to myself before I had kids, I want my kids or there's, and it's not even just me. It's sort of this idea of like, oh, well, if you take care of yourself, your kids will learn that, you know, it's important. Self-care is important or it's important for you to be happy, but it's really easy to say like, oh yeah, make time for yourself. And it's a whole nother thing to say like, okay, well, how am I going to carve out this time when, you know, so much of my role is as a mother and what am I, what ball am I going to have to drop in order to make this all work? Um, and I think that the book, The Upstairs House is sort of about how Megan has to come to terms with that and sort of has to be okay with the fact she's not going to be able to do everything on her own and she's not going to be able to do everything perfectly. And it's, it's okay to sometimes be selfish and it's okay to put your needs first when you are a new mother. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Julia. It has been an absolute pleasure to talk about real life issues and horror and how sometimes real life can also be horror and how parenthood isn't the fluffy stuff that we see in the movies <laughs> and it isn't the really, really scary stuff that we see in books either. It is somewhere in the middle and in a weird way that makes it truly more sinister. So thank you so much for coming along and talking to us this evening. Thank you so much for having me. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.